Welcome to Research Talk at Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Research Quality. I'm Dr. Lee Stoutlander. My guest is Dr. Leilani Gelstad. Dr. Gelstad is the head of Walden University's Institutional Review Board, or IRB. So welcome, Leilani. Thank you. So Leilani, what do we mean by ethics for chairs? Well, the ethical responsibilities for a faculty mentor or a chair are going to be slightly different from the ethical responsibilities that that same faculty member might have when they're conducting their own research. So when a faculty member is in the mentoring role, they are really there to help support the student in a principal investigator role. And so what they can do is help the students know where to find information and know where to go with questions about research ethics within um, whatever you know university setting they're in. And also to be aware of what the main ethical challenges are for, in this case, we're gonna talk about social science research. And so um, I'll list a few of those. Really what we um, run into with doctoral students completing social science research, typically surveys, interviews, observations, focus groups, things like that. Um, the main ethical challenges are recruiting in a non-coercive manner, so ensuring that participants are um, not being, that there's not any leveraging of power relationships to get participants into a study. Um, another important ethical challenge is maintaining sufficient confidentiality of the participants' identities and the data that the participants provide to the researcher. Can we go and, back? I'm sorry. Can we go back one sure. second, just to the section on recruiting? So, if a student wants to hand out flyers, let's say at a grocery store or something like that. Is that allowed? Mm, I mean, I guess I would personally say it would have to do with whether that grocery store is going to um, make sense as, you know, for obtaining a representative sample. There are lots of reasons why it might not be the best place. But from an ethical point of view, um, I mean, a grocery store is private property. It's not public. And so if the researcher has approval from the grocery store, whoever's in charge at the grocery store, I guess it could vary depending on the size of the grocery store and whether it's part of a large chain, but um, it, it, it could be ethically okay. If it's okay methodologically, I guess that's sort of a different issue. Mm -hmm. So they can go up and invite people to participate in the study? You mean just approach strangers? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm mm -hmm. getting at. In public settings, in public settings, it's appropriate. And there's a lot of variability, I would say, across different universities in terms of what they um, encourage students to do. It's not always a black and white, you know, this is illegal. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is absolutely pro prohibited. But in many cases, universities just don't want their students um, soliciting in a manner that seems kind of unprofessional. And so I think in many cases, it might not be the ethics entity at the university, but it might be the, the committee chair or members of the committee who say to the student, well, you know, you want to make sure you come across as credible and professional 
so that people take your study seriously. And um, sometimes the way they would approach people, um, for example, you might encourage a student a walking up to strangers, um, maybe instead have a table set up with a sign so that people at least have a little bit of a clue as you're making eye contact, why you're trying to get their attention as opposed to thinking, oh, this person needs help and they're approaching me because, you know, they, they're, you know, um, they need something like assistance with something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I think that in general, and actually this goes for faculty researchers as well as student researchers, um, as you're interacting with potential participants, it's really important to be really fair in representing yourself. And for example, if um, a, a con we have a, you know, when someone in the military does recruitment for a study, it's really important um, that if this study is not part of their military role, they should not be wearing their uniform. Just to give you an example. So that when, if someone approaches you wearing a uniform, um, then you're gonna assume that whatever they're about to talk to you, um, whatever topic they're gonna bring up with you has something to do with this, this uniform and their job in that organization. And so, um, in fact, I was gonna get to that as one of the ethical issues is managing dual roles is a really important um, challenge for a lot of doctoral students if they happen to be recruiting participants in a setting where they may be known or recognized as having a role different from the researcher role that they're taking on in that moment. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Sorry I interrupted. <laughs> no, that's fine. Those are good questions. Um, so yeah, the main recruiting in a non-coercive manner, that's one of the main ethical challenges for um, doctoral students, maintaining sufficient confidentiality um, of the participant's identity as well as the data itself. Um, and a third ethical challenge is ensuring that the participants understand the study before they volunteer, before they make a decision. And that's why we have the informed consent process. And so I want to emphasize that informed consent is not just a form. I think that's a really common um, sort of mistake in thinking that a lot of people assume that informed consent is just about signing a form. No, it's that's the least important part about it. The most important aspect of informed consent is that there's an exchange of information that the researcher provides information to the participant about the study and allows at least some time and space for potential questions if the potential participant has any um, questions and only after the participant has had an opportunity to understand the study should the participant make a decision about participation and often that's when a form might be signed if there is going to be a signing of a form but there are lots of other ways to indicate consent other than just signing a form for example if you're doing an online survey and um, maybe your recipients your potential participants have received your survey link by email. And of course, it would make sense that you would put the information that's going to enable the informed consent process on that first page or pretty early on. Maybe you'd have a, a brief cover page and then um, the information about the study that would enable the person to make an informed decision. And then it's really common to say, okay, click continue if you consent to being in this study. So the, the signature thing, it's, it, it is the way many studies, um, it's the way that consent has been documented for many, many, many studies for many years, but there are lots of examples and um, situations when a signature is, is not relevant. 
I think a lot of students don't really get the idea that their person can stop at any point. I and mean, a participant may decide that they don't want to do it after a while or it's too much or whatever. How should a chair help a student understand that? That's a great question. I, I find myself frequently giving feedback to researchers when I'm looking at their materials. Like, for example, the consent form. I just looked at one today where the student said, um, researcher said something like, anytime you want to stop, please, please request to stop, something like that. And it's way more simple than that. They don't have to ask to stop. They can just step away they don't have to explain anything to the researcher. And I think um, especially people who are used to being sort of um, the facilitator or, uh, or who are used to being, people who are used to, for example, running a classroom, you know, they're used to classroom management. And I think the idea that, oh, okay, if a student wants to do something, they can ask permission to stop. <laughs> and the, frankly, it's it's not that kind of power relationship between a researcher and a participant. The participant is is able, you know, in a classroom, it's usually not okay for a kid to just walk away, walk out of the classroom, right? But in a in a study of whatever age the participant is, if if they don't want to answer a question, and they don't have to explain why, they don't have to ask for permission to stop. They literally can just stop and and exit the process and. Um, Inexperienced experienced researchers know that this does happen, and it's usually because the person has something personal, very pressing they need to take care of, and the study's taking longer than they thought. I've seen it happen with interviews and in surveys that they just disappear. They say, I have to go, and, and maybe there's an opportunity to complete the rest of the survey or interview, maybe not. Um, it's not very frequent that somebody just is so overwhelmed or upset by and experience providing data that they want to quit. It's more frequent if someone's, uh, let's, let's say it's a, an interview about a very emotional topic, it's more common for someone to just say, I need a break or I need a moment. And, and that's, um, I think it is a bit challenging to help students who've never done a study before or never done data collection before to understand that. And so um, I think it's a really great idea to have students do a trial run with a friend or family member. So not someone in the actual target participant group. So not strangers, but friends who can role play and um, for a chair or a you know committee member to be willing to role play and you know, it could be helpful to role play the is um, an interviewee who's getting restless because this interview is running long, <laughs> and um, I think any of us who've done interviews can can testify. So sometimes, depending on how talkative the person is, it, it really can just can go along. But it's your responsibility as the researcher to respect the participant's time, and so um, I, I think a, a committee chair can help students be aware of, of those things that you know, may not occur to someone who hasn't done data collection before. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth having that discussion with students, particularly if it's a vulnerable group of some kind. Like I do a lot of work with older adults and they're often willing to tell you, I'm done, I, I've had enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And I, I've collected lots of data from, you know, middle school students and it's very common for them. If it's a packet of questionnaires to just stop or just start doodling <laughs> and, and that's okay. It, it, frankly, it's, this isn't their homework. This isn't their, you know, their schoolwork. They can stop. And I think that our researcher has to be thoughtful about, okay, are all of these questionnaires really necessary? And did I give everyone an, um, an accurate idea of how long this would take. And maybe sometimes for planning purposes, data collection should be broken up into different sessions. If it's rather than exhausting people by going, you know, too long, it would be better to just plan on having two separate sessions. Good point. Um, and the, the fourth um, major category um, in terms of um, student researchers ethical challenges is uh, maintaining the integrity of the study, which it, it does cover a lot. I mean, it includes appropriate citations for your sources. And if you're using data collection tools to ensure that if they are tools that involve some sort of licensing or fee that the student has complied with those requirements. But in most cases, it's a matter in social science anyway, in most cases, it's a matter of citing the authors of the original tool and um, ensuring that the student understands how to interpret the data from this assessment and doesn't um, go too far in, in coming up with their own <laughs> interpretations of someone else's tool, unless they really are in a position and they've done, they know how to do all the, um, uh, you know, item testing and reliability analyses and factor analyses if they want to reinterpret or rescore the scales in a certain tool. Um, but to make sure that students are, are using the tools in a responsible manner, that's really important. And then of course, um, committee members are, should be helping students to um, do the time management of the data collection so that um, there isn't uh, the type of pressure that sometimes happens when students put themselves, for example, on a timeline, like I want to finish the study by the end of this term. And then they start to feel, oh no, it's I've only got three weeks left in this term. That's when there's the greatest possibility for ethical problems because of this pressure to do it quickly. That's when we're more likely to see um, researchers get a little pushy about recruiting participants and possibly even being a pushy about, you know, having people who maybe want to drop out and saying, oh, no, couldn't you do this? I really need this. I really need to do this for the other. And they shouldn't be leveraging their needs, which is, you know, this kind of maybe an arbitrary deadline to get it done by the end of the term to pressure someone to do something they don't want to do. And certainly it's, it's very rare, but sometimes students under a lot of pressure to finish quickly um, end up taking shortcuts. And this is where the categories of data fabrication or data falsification um, arise. And it, it's very, I would say very rare. I mean, those of us in higher education know that when it comes to papers, you know, plagiarism is not that rare, unfortunately. Um, data falsification, actually going so far as to make up data or, uh, you know, fabricating data, um, is pretty rare. And um, in the few cases that I've seen and investigated, it almost always came down to a situation where someone felt a lot of pressure time management wise and overwhelmed and I'm not making excuses or anything. I'm just saying that's how they got into the situation. They didn't enter a doctoral program intending all along 
to fabricate their data set, but um, in, in some of the the cases I've heard of and seen, it, it was someone who was under a lot of pressure. And, you know, it's the chair in particular can really help set the student's expectations for how long data collection is likely to take so that students don't create unrealistic timelines that are then going to create this kind of pressure cooker situation when they, they start to feel desperate. If, if a student researcher has um, a reasonable expectation that, okay, if you put a survey out there and maybe a typical response rate is 15 to 20%. So, and you might have to issue a couple rounds of invitations to different groups if you're not, you know, meeting your sample size. So you should factor in, you know, X number of weeks or months. And um, I find that students are always shocked when I tell them that a 15 or 20% response rate is really good. And that's often with a gift card or some sort of thank you gift, um, like a, say a $15, $20 thank you gift card. And I think a lot of times students who have never done research before assume that they're going to get like a 90% response rate. And that's totally unrealistic. Um, you know, I, I think that even in the studies that I've seen that had excellent response rates, maybe they got up into the 30s or 40s and that 30 or 40 percent of respondents who volunteered and those were situations where the respondents were not asked to do very much and they were highly invested in the topic of the study already and um i think a, a response rate of 10 to 15 percent is much more reasonable um, and students if they have that expectation then they don't get as frustrated when they encounter that how would i know as a chair, if somebody had falsified data? Well, um, with qualitative data, it often is, it becomes obvious if a student um, is presenting findings that just line up a little too neatly with what maybe you've heard the student talk about, that what they expected to find or wanted to find. Um, though in the cases that I've seen, it often was a chair committee member who was noticing it was just too neat and tidy and even asking to see transcripts and like, no, people don't talk like that. People don't um, give responses like in that manner, that neat and tidy and using the same words exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, with quantitative, I think it is really hard um as as a faculty supervisor to ensure that the data is valid but to be honest if it, if it comes in way 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 faster than um you might have than you would have expected i would say that's something that you at least um it's completely reasonable to just say wow that was really fast response rate can you clarify for me when you sent the invitation out and it might want to take a look at the the log you know if it's an online survey let's say there's a log saying when all the responses came in um but you know in general it's um, the students responsible for the ethics of their own study and um, i think in each setting the role of the faculty mentors is usually spelled out as being a you know a support and in, in ensuring that the student is meeting all the requirements and so um other than those kind of odd examples I mentioned, I don't have any specific recommendations for what chairs can do to help set um, 
part to help um, ensure that the data set has integrity and that the analyses have integrity. Um, oh, I would say this. This was this is a big one. Um, getting help with the analyses. Mm. Um, boy, that's. I think treated differently in different university settings. And from what I've seen in, in some different cultures, the role of a committee member, um, some might be more hands-on, some might be very hands-off. Um, so I'll share my personal perspective and um, actually I'll give an example that's not related to research, but I took a bonsai class once to learn how to do little bonsai trees. And the fun part of a class like that is that there's, you know, they give you this little tree and you trim it into something beautiful. You shape it into something that is, um, you know, supposed to be a work of art. But I, I took this class and every time I had a question, the instructor who was very hands-on just got in there and did something to my little tree, like either cut something or added a new wire support. And I got very frustrated with that because this was supposed to be my class where I was supposed to be learning how to do it. And I think he probably thought he was being a great teacher and very helpful because he was very hands-on, but he took away the opportunity for me to learn by doing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was kind of disappointing, <laughs> but I think that a lot of times dissertation committee mentors sometimes, especially when they themselves are really excited about the topic and they, maybe have a good report with the student, they want to help. Sometimes they're a little too hands-on mm -hmm. and it's really important just like with so many mentoring roles in life that we step back and make sure that person gets the opportunity. This is their study. This is um, their topic. It's, it's their analyses and to really just stay out of it until support is needed. And um, if in doubt, if, if I think if a faculty member is in doubt about how much support should I give? The student is getting really, let's say it's a statistical analysis and the student is getting stuck. And I, you know, I know different folks might say, well, you know, send me your syntax and your output. I'll, I'll take a look. Um, and I know some who would be tempted to just get in there. Let's sit either side by side or let's do screen sharing and, and we'll just do it. In fact, I'll just do the clicking and you can watch. And to me, that crosses the line. Um, I think every university community should have conversations about where this line is. And if a student is going to hire a statistical consultant or an editor even, I think there should be a discussion with the, you know, the university's leadership about which tasks are okay for a consultant to assist with and what things do the student researcher, um, researchers really need to be responsible for on their own. That's a tough one. It is, it is. And, um, I th yeah, I really do believe a good mentor and the ones that I've encountered who have lots and lots of experience. Um, I think what they do so well is they know how to provide um, sort of that soft touch so the student feels like they're nearby and, and ready and willing to support, but can step back and not be too in the mix. And I, I mean, here's one easy example. I would personally say we shouldn't be using track changes with mm. our doctoral students, in my opinion. We should be entering comments that draw the student's attention to the issue that needs to be fixed. 
with track changes, it's just too easy for us to say, oh, I know how you need to wear this. Let me just do it for you. Let me, and, and maybe that's okay once as a teaching model. Look how I revised your paragraph. But to do that on an entire section, or I think that's just really dangerous and that's not good teaching. That's just taking over like my bonsai teacher <laughs> did. Um, and I, I find that with my work in giving students ethics feedback, I will enter comments you know, at, at least in the first and second rounds, and if they're still really not getting it or not understanding, maybe I will give them some words, like say, you could word it like this, but I'm still not gonna do track changes because I, I feel like if they just accept the track change, they're not gonna learn from the experience. And what's really dangerous is not only might they not learn from the experience, but they not acknowledge or be aware of what they just changed in their own, let's say, consent form or in their own proposal. It's really important that you are tracking in your mind what all of these changes are. And, and so I think track changes is really dangerous, personally. I haven't heard that one before. I like that. I like how you're thinking about it. I'm probably too hands-on sometimes. I usually give <laughs> my students, a, you know, let them do it. That when we get to the end and we're kind of trying to get it in the final form, I often will go in and fuss around with it, but probably too much. No, and I really think there's a place for it, especially, you know, in the abstract. Or it's it's like we know there's a certain f way of, of even just wording certain things in a scholarly setting mm -hmm. where it will be better understood and... Um, be taken more credibly, you know, and that's what we're trying to help um, doctoral students um, grow in is that credible, authentic, scholar, um, scholarly voice, right? Um, but then, I, yeah, I think that the model should be let's, if I do track changes, maybe even like let's do it live while we're together screen sharing mm -hmm. and I can explain to you why I'm moving this here and moving that there, why I'm using this turn of phrase and then say, now you do the next paragraph. And, and and we'll I'll sit here and watch you and, and offer some suggestions, but it's you doing it. I think that would be ideal. I often do that with like data analysis where I'll show yeah. them <coughs> sorry. I'll show them how to do one, but then it's like, okay, now you do the next. And I just watch and I can be doing other things and just checking in and making sure that what they're doing makes sense. But it seems to work pretty well, but you often wonder sure. crossing that line. I don't know. Definitely. Well, and you know, there's, you just reminded me that one of the other important things, it's often not on the student's radar, but for, I guess, some students are more concerned about publishing than others. Some students just want to get through their program and get their doctoral degree. And um, some, a subset of those are interested in continuing a career that involves publications and presentations. And I personally think that having a conversation with your doctoral student very early on is important so that there are no misunderstandings about authorship or the data set. You know, if, if I is, um, it, it's, I think it comes up in every setting, um, perhaps more so in some of the publisher parish types of, contexts um, where uh, one of the reasons why, sometimes why chairs um, mentors get so excited about students data sets is it means 
great publications for them or, or presentations. And I just, I do think the potential is, it's really dangerous there um, for a student who is trusting the mentor to lead them or, or support them, I guess is a better word, in the process of publishing. And then maybe the chair at some point feels like, wow, now I really am doing the heavy lifting. The student graduated a year and a half ago and I'm the one getting it ready for publication. And these perceptions, it's, it's, it's something that can go really badly if it's not discussed at some point early on. And I, I, you know, just asking, you know, what are your thoughts? Are you interested in publishing later? And if the student says no, maybe even a little encouraging um, to say, well, you might be surprised that once you, once you do this, you might want to keep doing it. And if so, um, this is what I typically do with my students if they're interested in publishing or continuing to analyze other aspects of the same data set. And, and you know, maybe some um, faculty members don't have the bandwidth to offer any um, collaboration, uh, you know, time and energy to do that kind of collaboration. And to be honest, it probably depends on how it goes with working with the student. If they're, you know, a real pleasure and very easy to work with, that's one situation. And if it turns out that it's the writing is just constant, um, maybe a, a battle to try to get it into a good scholarly voice that may not be as appealing, but um, so, so I, I don't think we, none of us are in a position, I think, when we start working with a doctoral student to make promises about this is going to happen after you, after you graduated, we are going to publish or we are going to present. Um, but then there's sort of a optimistic, if, if the data, if these findings are really um, uh, major, <laughs> then let's consider this and this is what I would do. And I, I think I've definitely observed a lot of faculty members be gracious with um, either not expecting to be a co-author at all or just telling student front, you know, you're the lead author, this is your study. And I've seen a few situations where the faculty member presumed, you know, first authorship, um, which of course, you know, first authorship means different things in different fields. But um, in my field in psychology, it usually reflects that the person who's the first author did most of the intellectual contributions. And so um, I, I think that misunderstand, misunderstandings are easily prevented by having those conversations early on. Great idea. So what happens if I suspect my student may not have done something ethically? What, what are my requirements or expectations as a chair? Sure. Well, it is tricky because um, None of us enjoys being in a situation where you feel like, oh, I, I'm getting this funny feeling and I think maybe something's wrong and yet I don't want the other person to feel attacked or feel like I don't trust them or believe them. And um, I would say that in most cases, it's a good idea to first, before you even talk to the student, to consult with a a lead in your department, or if it's a research issue, consult with someone in the IRB so that they could give some insight. I have had many situations when chairs come to me with a concern and I've been able to say, oh, that happens all the time. That's actually not a major concern. Or um, I can support them and say, oh, that does sound serious. Here's a template for a type of a, a letter you could, or an email you could write that's 
not accusing the student, but asking for clarification. And it also, if you can set it up from the beginning that, you know, I, I'm looking for understanding about this issue and, you know, we're all sort of focusing on what the common goal is of having a high quality study come out of, you know, the situation. And, um, and, and then the student can answer, address the concerns, hopefully without being too defensive. Um, it, in the work that I do, um, you know, we have IRB violations and I deal also with um, allegations of false data falsification and um, fabrication. And I find that when it comes to IRB violations, n a huge majority, I would say maybe even as high as 80, 90% are literally just a misunderstanding that someone misspoke or mistyped and um, what the chair or suspected happened didn't really happen. It was just a, a, a way that somebody spoke a bit carelessly or, or made a generalization. In situations when a student did a major misstep, like for example, maybe they recruited some participants with whom they have a power dynamic and this was something that, no, you were not supposed to recruit that group of, let's say your own students that, you know, you're going to be greeting in the next month like that or um if i i think one of the i won't say common misunderstandings but something that occasionally happens is that students might get other people involved in their study that shouldn't be involved like involving research assistants that the either the committee didn't know about or the university or the irb didn't know about and those research assistants didn't, don't have the appropriate qualifications. And in those cases, um, you know, that's, that's pretty serious. Um, and so, you know, the faculty member would not be responsible for fixing it, but the faculty member's responsibility would be to alert the IRB or alert their department chair or both, you know, depending on whether it's just a data collection issue or if maybe it's a bit more of a broad issue. Um, and then I, I know that all IRBs and all, um, you know, deans, they, they have protocols for dealing with this in a fair way. We, I know, um, we have a document that's a lengthy standard operating procedures for any type of investigation. And it's, it's designed to be very fair to the person um, anytime that allegations are raised so that it's not an accusatory sort of witch hunt sort of experience that the person has opportunities to um to explain their point of view and to have if necessary a, a, an impartial person or even an impartial committee take a look at the situation and so you can definitely reach out to people in your university setting for support with that and it can seem scary i think that um there are some universities that have the faculty member listed as the pi of student mm -hmm. research I know at our university it's the case of the students the pi and um, so maybe that's a question to pose to your IRB if, if you are curious about what your responsibilities are. Yeah, it would be hard in a online university like Walden for the PI to be the chair, I would think, since they're not directly supervising, it would be really difficult. Exactly. And I, I know that in some large organizations, you know, especially universities that also have teaching hospitals, they may have um, more complex processes for certifying their 
investigators, the researchers, besides just, you know, completing an, an ethics training, which is what all universities do to some level, but others of them also require um, that the researchers have legal briefings and, you know, go to other sorts of meetings and have other requirements and other um, lines of accountability within um, various departments. And so it really can vary from institution to institution um, how, how much the faculty members on the hook, so to speak, for the students' actions. So it's a good idea to, to understand that. Um, I, I think you can take a look in most cases at the IRB application itself. In the section where the faculty member is asked to sign, it usually states um, what exactly that committee, that uh, faculty member is committing to, right? That seems fair, that <laughs> where you're yeah. asked to sign that you would have a list of what your responsibilities. So on our IRB application, it says things like, I will report any adverse events within a certain amount of time. I will ensure that the student stays enrolled with me in a course, you know, or, or things like that. Um, or just I understand that during the data collection, the student needs to remain enrolled with me in order to keep that contact of the supervision. Um, and you know, it's always okay to ask questions. I think that's the most important thing to know that it's, it shouldn't be scary or it shouldn't be um, a feeling that you're in this alone um, to try to support a student when there are surely um, at least resources and, and leadership um, in department heads and whatnot who would be able to provide insight as to, to what the role should be. Thank you, Dr. Leilani Gelstad for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by audionautics.com, and I'm Dr. Lee Statlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Center for Research Quality. Mm -hmm.